All right, who's ready to, to go racing this morning? Anybody ready to go for a race? A race? Uh, we've been uh, Mark's traveling companions as we're going through the gospel of Mark, and he's moving at a race breakneck speed. And what is he racing towards? He's taking you and I quickly to the cross. Uh, there's only 16 chapters in this gospel. It's the fastest moving gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he's doing that very intentionally. And as we learned in the last couple weeks, there's been rising conflict happening in chapters 1, and in particular, chapter 2. And again, today, uh, the story that we're about to read is there's escalating conflict. And have you ever noticed with conflict that there's some superficial reason for the conflict? Maybe you're angry at someone right now, or someone cut you off in traffic and shot you a bird, or... Uh, someone actually jumped out of their car, came up to my window, and punched my window uh, not too long ago. Um, wow. My point in even bringing that up is to say, isn't it interesting that there's superficial reasons for conflict, and then there's usually a root reason for conflict? There's usually something else going on when there's such rage or such uh, deep expression uh, of, of anger coming out that way. Uh, Mark chapter 3, today for us, there's a superficial reason for the conflict that's going on between the audience that we're going to learn about here, some people, the characters in the story. There, there's a superficial reason for their conflict, and that superficial reason is it's about the Sabbath. Is Jesus going to heal someone on this most holy day called the Sabbath? Because the Old Testament had taught this particular group, no work should be done on the Sabbath, not even healing someone. That's a superficial reason, I submit to you. The deeper reason, I submit to you, the root reason for this conflict that they're having with Jesus is hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. And when we even use that phrase, hardness of heart, we mean uh, maybe you know someone right now is just coming to your mind. This person is not only hard-headed. Um, my dad used to tell my brother and I that sometimes. You guys are just hard-headed. You, you won't, it won't seem to sink in to your mind what I'm trying to teach you. And so hard-hearted kind of has an image uh, of, of sort of like hard soil. If a farmer were trying to plant uh, and want that seed to take root, um, you know, you've got to get into the soil and you need a much softer soil to be able to get in there. You've got to break it up first. And so as we look at this, I want you to pay particular attention to how Jesus seeks to tenderize our hearts. This is not a story about uh, the end lesson being you all have a hard heart. This is a story that says, uh, yes, we have a hard heart, yet we have a heart surgeon, Jesus, who's able to tenderize our heart. So uh, let's, uh, let's jump into the story um, here. I'll read it, um, and then we can kind of come back sort of uh, verse by verse and try to unpack what's going on in the story here. You'll, you'll find it printed here uh, in our bulletin. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Jesus went into the synagogue again, and he noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said 
to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. Then Jesus turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save a life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Let me just ask a very fair question. How could anyone have conflict with Jesus? Sheep petting, kid hugging, old people helping, (coughs) miracle maker. I mean, conflict with Jesus? And I guess I bring that question up is to say, be careful that when we read a story like this, we don't say, ah, those stupid people. How could they dare have conflict with Jesus? We have to see ourselves in the story. This sort of a Bible study and a Bible reading tip right here at this point is to say, when you're getting solitude with God, which we talked about in chapter one of Mark, when you're getting time alone with God to grow in your relationship with God and you're reading through the scriptures, see yourself in the story. Don't just read it in a hurried way and to check it, check it off the list. I read my Bible. See yourself in the story and that we too, we too have hardened hearts at times. Um, let's talk about um, this rising and escalating conflict here for, for just a moment in terms of context. Just again so that we're uh, remembering what was going on. Remember last week in chapter 2 uh, that there was conflict. Jesus, uh, the story was there that he was um, noticing this um, paralyzed person. Remember this? His friends actually uh, went up on top of the roof of his house. They, t- they tore a hole into the, into the roof. Uh, now, again, at small group this past week, we were trying to figure out who are we in that story. And one person said, well, I think I'd be like the homeowner. And the homeowner would have been, would have been thinking, what the heck? What's going on? Like pebbles and whatever else is falling from the ceiling. Like, here comes this paralyzed person. See, the superficial problem and conflict that they have with Jesus in that story is, is Jesus really going to allow someone who's like, like sick to get in here close to us? Like, is, is that what he's going to do? Um, the root reason for their conflict with Jesus in that story is when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. That's, that's a root conflict for, for this audience with Jesus because Jesus is indeed equating that he is God because only God can forgive sins. There's conflict in the story. Jesus is claiming to be God. Don't miss the point there in chapter two. Don't miss that deep Rooted conflict. Also in Mark 2, the, 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 uh, the conflict keeps escalating. Um, he calls Matthew to follow him. He says, come follow me. And surface issue of conflict they have with Matthew following Jesus is Matthew's a tax collector. Matthew is in on the corruption that's going on with the Roman government of sort of shaving off, sort of scraping some off the top of those funds, of those taxes that you too you and I would have been told to stop at this booth, stop at that booth, and if you want to go a little farther, stop at this booth and pay some taxes. Superficially, they're upset 
that that's going on. The root reason for the conflict is that God loves sinners. That's what's really going on. That's what we mean when we say hard-hearted. They couldn't imagine that God would actually love someone like this person called Matthew who just days later throws a party at his own house and invites, the text says there in uh, Mark chapter 2, many disreputable sinners. And Jesus is eating with them. They get furious. The Pharisees are furious at this. So in our story, verse 1 says, Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Please, please don't skip over this part right here in verse 1. Just the simplicity that he noticed. Jesus notices a man. Jesus is just isn't in there as, as just like the best, most amazing teacher. He's actually seeing the very people who are in there. He, he sees the crowds. This is Jesus' love for people. He sees you. He knows you. He knows your story. He sees you. Verse 2, since it was the Sabbath and Jesus' enemies, again, this is told earlier in the book of Mark who these enemies are, it's called the Pharisees. This is a uh, group of uh, religious leaders, and basically they're so zealous as religious leaders, they want to protect the Mosaic law. So these people, they know the Old Testament. They know it well. And here comes Jesus, and they're going to be watching him to make sure that he doesn't break the law of Moses. That was part of their role. They were sort of like cops in the church. Um, and then the Greek, if you read this in the Greek, whenever it says that they watched him closely, basically that's where we get our word for categorize. They're trying to categorize Jesus. Who is this Jesus? What category is he going to fall under? And perhaps they had set this whole thing up. Perhaps they planted this man in there to see what would Jesus do. Let's go ahead and set it up and see how Jesus is going to respond to it. Another word we need to define or sort of have a little bit of history of is this word Sabbath. We just need to know that sort of like that this is a big deal. This is very significant when you come upon that word there. Sabbath, it means rest. And superficially, it meant, hey, work six days. Per God's order and the way that God even creates all things, God worked on six days and on the seventh day, God rested. So there's the template for the Sabbath. Uh, so superficially, it meant work six days, and on the seventh day, no work. The root meaning of Sabbath meant rest in God. Rest in God. Because see, you can get all prideful and hard-hearted that you were indeed resting on the Sabbath, but you weren't truly resting in God and trusting in God. So they knew, the Pharisees would have, would have known that Deuteronomy chapter 5 was all about this fourth commandment, to keep the Sabbath holy, it would say. Now you ask, I ask, um, okay, what am I supposed to do on the Sabbath? What can I do? What can't I do? I mean, there's my job, there's the stressful part of my work, there's uh, bills I need to pay, you, you, we all got to pay. What, what, what can I do, what can I not do on the Sabbath? The Pharisees made some extra rules and policies and regulations. That's what we need to know about the Pharisees when we talk about the Sabbath. 
Did you know that they had uh, specified how many steps a person could take on the Sabbath? It was called a Sabbath day's walk. What? As if you could take seven steps, or how many other steps it was, but once you, once you took that eight point, you now had just broken the Sabbath. By the way, that wasn't God's law. That was a law that the Pharisees erected. Um, and made for themselves. They, they also had a specific law that, 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 that said how much water you could pour out on that day. No, no, they weren't trying to save the environment. But something happened when you poured three gallons out compared with three gallons and one more drop. So somewhere right in there, you just broke the Sabbath. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Uh, they had another one of, of, of how much food prep you could do. Right? So you can do this much food prep but if you're throwing like a big party and, and you need more appetizers or whatever you're doing, oops, I'm sorry, you just broke this out. So sort of nebulous, very uh, ambiguous, perhaps intentionally ambiguous to once again um, help them feel powerful. Powerful. Um, so here's what's going on. Let's take a step back from the story. Jesus has a way of helping those Pharisees see their own hardness of heart. And Jesus has a way of helping you and I see our own hardness of heart. Especially when we say, I'm not hardened of heart. That couldn't dare be me. Um, so that's a little bit about, about the Sabbath. Um, they, they, they knew the original, or they thought they knew the original intent of it was um, to, to sort of uphold all these rules and regulations, but they were actually missing the intent of the law. Um, they were missing the intent that this basically uh, Sabbath came from a context of being slaves in Egypt. They've been slaves in Egypt, and especially uh, on, on a weekend like Martin Luther King Jr., um, where, we're, where we're talking about and it's celebrating humanity's freedom and still wanting to fight for it because it matters. Uh, he wanted to take this audience back, the Pharisees back, to help them understand the context of Sabbath meant that they were indeed given six days and they were to rest. Um, I mean, think about their identity in, uh, in slavery. You're to make a quota of bricks. And if you make a quota of bricks, whatever we tell you that the quota is, you're, you're in good standing, you have an identity. Um, if you don't, you're, you're probably beaten. And uh, we ramp up the injustice on you. Um, the Sabbath is God's wanting us to know that we are no longer valued by what we do. That's the Sabbath. Don't, again, don't miss that part of the Sabbath. And, and, and actually, your own Sabbath, that you and I are learning how to enjoy that God has given us, that your Sabbath, my Sabbath, is a day of resting in God where we realize and thank God that my identity as a person is not in what I can get done. It's not about a quota that they're putting on me at work. It's not that I'm as relevant as my last sale. We belong. And we're supposed to be uh, coming into that rest. Um, Mark chapter 2, earlier, last week. Uh, as if you read Mark chapter 2, it says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift for you and, and for me. To enter into that rest. And see, here's the irony, again, of the whole story. Aren't the Pharisees working right now as they're with Jesus? You say, what, what do you mean, Troy? How, how are they working? 
How can they dare be worthy? They're plotting. They're plotting to kill Jesus. That's a lot of work when you plot. When you plan evil. Oh my goodness, that's a lot of work going on. Just, I'm just saying that the text is kind of dripping with irony right there as Mark writes it for us. It's the Pharisees who are working. Verse 4. Verse 4. Jesus turns to his critics and asks, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save a life or to destroy it? <coughs> Silence is in the room. They wouldn't even answer Jesus. Why wouldn't they answer Jesus? Why are they not even going to answer Jesus? They think it's wrong to do good for someone on the Sabbath. They're using Moses as a tool against Jesus. Almost like a competition going on here between Jesus and the Pharisees. Who understands Moses better? And this is where you and I need to take a step back from the story and understand that the Old Testament and Hebrew roots of this conflict that Jesus has with the Pharisees is actually rooted in the same conflict Moses has with Pharaoh. And the Pharisees would have known that. So Jesus plays a little skit with them. I mean, Jesus is a mastermind. Jesus plays a little skit with the Pharisees about Pharaoh. And in this little skit, Jesus is like Moses in the story. Remember Moses in the story to Pharaoh? Let God's people go. And what happens there in the story? If you go back and read it in Exodus, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And he wouldn't let God's people go. He wouldn't do it. So Jesus is like Moses in this story. Jesus is playing the Moses, playing the role of Moses who speaks to Pharaoh in Egypt. Hey, let this person be healed, even if it's on the Sabbath. What's the big point? It's probably about your power more than anything. And Jesus wants the Pharisees to see that they are now Pharaoh in the story. They're the ones hardening their hearts against this person receiving freedom from slavery. Now Mark, again, Mark is wanting to show us uh, this very audience right here, contemporary audience, that we too, we too have a hardness of heart. We too can be hostile towards God. And no, it doesn't matter how nice of a person you are or how friendly You and I try to be at times. Underneath the surface, there can be deep root issues of our conflict with God. One of which is, I don't want this King Jesus to be in control of my life. I'll keep thinking of Jesus as nice and cuddly, sheep petting, child hugging, helping people. But if he's Lord and he's King, there's conflict between me and this Jesus. I don't know. And so for some of us, that conflict is more expressive and it's more out. We, we may like be, come, come right out and say, look, I don't even believe in God because of that. Others of us are a little bit more private with that conflict that we have with Jesus. We might keep it to ourselves. But nonetheless, I think our authors are wanting us to know that we all have it. Notice anger. There's a lot of anger in this story. You see the anger coming out in this story. And at this point, you may be thinking that you have anger issues. You may be like a boiling pot, right? There's certain things we know about each other. There are other things that we don't know about one another. Um, Look how Jesus channels his anger. 
You may say, what? Jesus, Jesus got angry? Oh, yeah. Verse 5. Jesus looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Now, I just want to make a comment here. I'm so glad that the text couples these two things together, these two attributes of Jesus together. That he's deeply distressed with anger and he has grief. He's saddened about their heart to hearts. The two kinds of anger going on in the passage here, I mean, we notice the anger of the Pharisees that their rules aren't being followed. They're so pissed off at the rules, it's the regulations, and they're going to enforce it. They're going to be morality cops for everyone. And Jesus' anger is he's simply distressed, deeply distressed. And instead of wanting people um, to follow rules, he's wanting them to really know God. Anger, this expressive, most explosive emotion. Anyone ever broken something whenever they've been angry? Don't don't answer that one. Ever ever picked up something and wanted to throw it out the window, or perhaps you did, or throw someone out? Don't don't do that. But it's very explosive emotion, anger, and we all deal with it. And I guess my question in reading this story is. What are you really angered about? What is it? Is it that someone's not following the rules? Is it injustice in our world? Is it that your roommate didn't clean up their mess? Again, I want you to think about superficial reasons for our conflict and for our anger. And then I want you to go deeper with why does that make you angry? Why does that make you angry? It's estimated that a billion people in the world don't have access to clean drinking water. That ought to make you angry. That ought to get your attention and get you upset. A third of the world's population doesn't have proper sanitation. One in eight in our world are chronically hungry. One in five kids in the U.S. live in poverty. I mean, these are big things not to make us feel guilty, but to simply ask what? What is it that makes you angry? And the lesson in our story is that we need to be angry about what makes God angry. That is a growing follower of Jesus, right? I mean, that is the whole title of our series here is come follow me, Jesus says. Being a follower of Jesus is, it, is being in this process, this journey of beginning to get angry about the things that Jesus and God gets angry at and feeling sadness for the things that God feels sadness about. Jesus had anger and grief. Jesus' anger is that he he has this passion for what's broken inside you and me. He sees what's broken in there. He sees twisted motives, corruption, greed, jealousy, anger, lust, insecurity. He, he, He sees it all. And his passion is to restore all of that inside of you. He's a restorer. He he wants to tenderize your heart and my heart. And and yes, this happens on a daily basis as you and I are in the Word, reading, praying, perhaps even showing up in that time with God and and saying to God, God, I, I feel like I have a hard heart right now. 
I feel like I have a hard heart because I'm just, I kind of don't care right now. I, I sort of feel distant. I kind of feel numb. And you know what? That's actual great progress in, in your relationship with God. God, I, I feel like I'm, I have a hard heart and I want you to tenderize that heart. Do what you must to tenderize me because as you tenderize me, I begin to experience human flourishing in the way that you created me to experience. Here's the kicker of the story. They're waiting to see if Jesus is going to heal on the Sabbath, right? What's he going to do? Uh, Guess what? The Israelites were freed from slavery out of Egypt. It says in Exodus that they left on the first day of unleavened bread, which is what day? It's the Sabbath. God healed on the Sabbath. Are you catching it? The Pharisees would have known the story so well of the Israelites being rescued by this God, this Yahweh, who will fight for his people, who will be a representative for them and will be faithful for them when they can't be and when they've been enslaved by oppressors, he rescued them and it was actually the Sabbath day that he rescued them. Jesus turns that on Pharisees right there. The plot thickens. He turns it on them. It's beautiful here that they also know that Moses was told to stretch forth his hand to part the Red Sea and that God stretched forth his hand to free the Israelites from bondage. That's why subtly Jesus is telling this man with the withered hand, stretch forth your hand. You'll be healed. This is amazing detail. The Pharisees all the more would have thought, who is this teacher? This is the point. God healed on the Sabbath. Again, verse 5, Jesus says to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored. Takeaway right here for you and me is hold out your hand. Literally, whatever is aching, whatever needs healing, if it's an emotion, if it's a dream, if it's a loss, hold it out to God, to look to the Lord Jesus. Do so by faith. That most tender thing, that thing in your heart right now that's aching, hold it out. Bring that out. Let that come out. Give Jesus what you feel is withered so that he can restore it. Stretch out your hand. Now, a hard heart does not stretch out their hand. A hard heart says, I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Or there's nothing even wrong with my hand. And you'll you'll remember some of Jesus' language about this earlier in Mark, where he says that if you aren't sick, I can't help you. But if you are sick, I can heal you. Verse 6, catch this in the story. After the man's hand was restored, at once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot to kill Jesus. Okay, you're in there. See yourself in the story. Jesus heals the man. I may have said an expletive right there. I don't know. I would have been like, what just happened? Wouldn't you have been amazed? Some of you are very expressive, I know. You, you would have been dancing around. 
one of you would have said, what's up, baby? <laughs> Look at what a hardened heart does, though. Jesus just did this real thing in front of everybody. Notice Jesus actually brought him up in front of everyone to see what he's about to do. I mean, their hardness of heart is so hard that they can witness a supernatural healing that happens right in front of them. And the very first thing they do is say, let's go have a meeting. There's a meeting. We're plotting to kill this Jesus. In fact, we're going to collaborate with the Herodians. Summary of the story is Mark, our gospel writer, is presenting to us escalating conflict that will be traveling very, very, very fast as it makes its way to the height of conflict that we have with God when we kill him, when we put him on a cross, when we say he's a blasphemer, he's a fake, he's a fraud. And Mark is just letting us sort of sit in this conflict. And here's the beautiful part about the conflict that we have with God. And I love how Martin Luther King Jr. used to say uh, to, that we should have a tough mind and a tender heart. I love that. I love that. that that's, what, that's what the Lord Jesus is asking of you. Have a tough mind. Think. Reason. Have a tender heart. Open up your heart. Ask the Lord Jesus to tenderize your heart so that we might see our need for this King Jesus, that he truly is a restorer that can restore whatever is wrong with us, not just for the Pharisees, but we are those people in the story in need of restoration. Are you angry? Are you angry? What are you angry about? And might Jesus tenderize our heart so that the thing that we're most angry about is our hardened hearts? May that overwhelm us most of all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being a restorer. Thank you for being a healer. Thank you that literally on the Sabbath day, you chose to do good. You chose to heal pointing those Pharisees back to that ancient story there in Egypt when you brought your people out with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. Lord God, thank you for that freedom that we have in you. Thank you for the Sabbath that you give us, that we would rest in you. Help us rest in you. Help us be angry about the right things. Help us be saddened with grief about our own heart and hearts. Lord, for some of us, we're numb. For some of us, we're, we're, we're too busy to even feel. And for some of us, we're just too self-righteous to even admit that at times we have a hard heart. Others of us are feeling like, oh yeah, I got a hard heart, and there's, how could it be possible that God could restore that? Oh, Lord God, you're, you're the miracle worker. Change our hearts right now, even as we pray. For it's something we can't do ourselves, and it's something we can't do for one another. So we ask you to do it. And we pray in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.